Hello, and welcome to Virtual Philanthropy. I'm your host, E.J. Jacobs. Virtual Philanthropy is a donor-led virtual tour of the grant-making process. Donors walk us through how they find potential organizations and ultimately decide to fund them. Today's person in philanthropy is a very good friend. My guest is Maya Winkleson from the Open Road Alliance. Welcome, Maya. Hi, EJ. I'm thrilled to be here and, and talking with you today. So am I. I feel like every podcast mentions Open Road Alliance at some point, whether we're using you as a, a best practice example or we're just talking about the great work that you do. So we now finally get you on here. But of course, we're getting you here because of what else? An emergency. And that emergency happens to be quite a serious one. Of course, we're talking about coronavirus. Before we dig into your organization's response to COVID-19, tell us something about the organization itself. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we uh, started, way, one of the ways that we describe um, the strategy of Open Road Alliance, and, and we've been pursuing this strategy since 2012, so this is a very much pre-COVID approach, um, is that we are the emergency room of impact. Um, that's what our funding strategy has been designed to address and what we've been doing for eight years, helping nonprofits and social enterprises in moments of crisis. Um, and so, yeah, these, these past six, seven weeks um, have really been a moment for us. And, and to kind of continue that analogy, it's not surprising that our emergency room um, overfloweth. Um, but, yeah, that's, I, I think, the, the shortcut to who we are and how we fit into the zeitgeist today. Now, of course, everyone, every organization, at least, they believe that they've got some sort of emergency happening at their organization. But at this point, as you said, everyone truly does have an emergency. How do you gauge what happens with organizations in terms of a COVID response emergency versus a very valid emergency that's happening that may not actually be directly involved with COVID? Absolutely. So there's two things there. The first is that uh, in pre-COVID days, when we talked about emergencies and our criteria and people that came to us, we like to say that there's two types of emergencies. There's oops and there's oh my God. Uh, and, and really, there's, those are also two types of unexpected, if you will. All right. So the oops and the oh my God version of unexpected. Um, the oops is that kind of internal one. It's a mistake. It's we did the wrong thing, uh, it's malfeasance, it's making mismanagement, and that does happen, um, and that certainly is still happening in, in the time of COVID. Um, but the, this other, this oh my God moment, you know, this is when everything, you're doing everything right, you're the right team, the right finances, everything in place, and guess what? The world is unpredictable. That still happens, and that's the oh my God emergencies that, that we specialize in. Uh, and again, in this time of COVID, COVID itself is everyone's oh my God moment. And what we've really seen, you know, looking at, you know, we've been tracking data over the last eight years of what it is that goes wrong in philanthropy, what brings people through our doors in non-COVID times. Um, and really the best way to describe what's happening right now is it is as if an earthquake or a hurricane has just hit every city, in every state, in every country around the world simultaneously. And the economic impact, the social impact, the impact on the impact sector, uh, it really is national disaster proportions. And it is, it's as if an earthquake has literally hit every community at the same time. Uh, and that's what we're seeing coming through our doors in terms of the financial impact on, on the community. 
No, I feel like since your inception, I've known you and I've known you and Laurie to be real big ambassadors for trying to get other foundations to join you because obviously you can't fund every emergency for every nonprofit in the world. How has that sort of transformed or evolved in the time of COVID? It's been really interesting. We've become really popular uh, in the last seven weeks. Um, and it is, it's kind of, it's, it's, it's good and it's also really bad. I feel a little bit like Cassandra. Um, you know, I don't want to have been right. Um, but yeah, to your point, we've been, we have been pleading uh, in, in some cases, you know, with our peers um, for, for years now to say, we've got to prepare. We've got to be better prepared for risk. We've got to be better prepared for the uncertainty. We need to build more resilience into our funding structures, our donor-grantee relationship, um, because even outside of COVID, things go wrong. And, and of course, everybody is now experiencing that. So, you know, the bad news is, and unfortunately, you know, we were still very much, um, hadn't gotten the widespread adoption of preparing for uh, the unexpected before COVID hit. But, you know, the flip side of that is, is I don't have to make the argument anymore. Um, it is now in our face. We are all experiencing it. Um, and the good news is that we also as an organization have evolved. Have evolved. Um, so we've actually been doing a number of things with our, our peers and our friends in order to help them respond in this moment. Uh, one of the things we're doing, certainly we have been liberal and open with our advice. Um, you know, we have experience in applying a triage lens and criteria to emergencies kind of being able to suss out what you brought up, EJ, of, well, how do you determine if this is a problem that actually existed pre-COVID or is really caused by COVID? Um, that's an area of, of expertise and due diligence that, that we have developed over eight years, and it's something that, you know, we're happy to share our, our tips and lessons learned to our peers. Um, the other piece, and, and this is, you know, shameless plug, uh, warning coming up is uh, <laughs> we actually just closed on in March 13th, uh, and that was a date that had been set many months ago, so someone somewhere has a sense of humor in the timing, uh, but we March 13th, we closed the first round of our first external vehicle, which allows other funders and foundations to co-invest alongside us uh, in order to provide uh, specifically short-term bridge loans for organizations that, yes. that are unexpected obstacles. So that's a $40 million fund that we have been working on for the past two years. And again, well predates COVID. Um, and again, the, the, the serendipity here is that fund closed just in the nick of time. Um, we closed with $10.5 million to start. We have reopened the fund. Uh, in fact, we reopened it literally a week after we first closed it um, in recognizing that the, the moment that COVID was going to be presenting. And I am really, really happy and, and proud to say that we are seeing our, our peers and colleagues step up. So it does look like we're going to close hopefully another 5 to $10 million. Before I say that we are experiencing a very truncated version of the virtual tour, we're also experiencing a very virtual version of the tour. So there are going to be a bunch of surprises and sounds and things like that that might happen that might normally happen during a call. And with that, you've already sort of segued a bit into your shameless plug. I'd love for you to talk a bit more about some of the other things that you might be doing that you're really proud of. I feel like half of my podcasts have already been highlighting things that you should be proud of, but feel free to jump in and, and give us one more before we go forward. 
Sure. I think one other thing that I would shamelessly plug right now um, is really my team. We got our first COVID-related inquiry on March 10th. Since then, we have received over 500 inquiries for grants and loans, totaling over $54 million worth of requests from nonprofits and social entrepreneurs who are being affected by COVID, and more importantly, the impact um, that they're having is being threatened by, by COVID uh, and the related fallout. Uh, we have already gone through hundreds of those inquiries. Um, we have over 50 active applications in our pipeline and are continuing to, to move our processes as they've been, been built or experienced emergencies in normal times. Um, but it, it's really been all hands-on tech. Uh, and I, I'm just really proud of my team. And, and as we've been, uh, we've been slogging through. Our, our feeling is that even in this moment of crisis, as funders, we still have the easiest job. And therefore, if we're not moving as fast as we can and as focused as we can and as diligently and intentionally as we can, that's going to be wasted privilege. And I, I, I'm proud to say that my team is getting up and doing that every day. Now, you're aware that this is being recorded, so they're going to play this back for you when it's time for raises. I'm just going to let you know that, just putting that out there. <laughs> Take us on your virtual tour. Now, this one obviously is going to be a bit different because we're talking about the COVID response specifically, but how do nonprofits reach you, come to you the right way? What's the best way for people, especially within the COVID situation, but in general, when they have an emergency, to, to reach out to, to Open Road? Yes, so we are one of the few funders I feel left out there that does accept unsolicited inquiries. Uh, so you can go to our website, you can find an email address, you can email that email, and there is a live person um, whose basically full-time job is to answer those emails, triage, screen, and reply to every single person that contacts us. Uh, that is happening a little slower in this COVID era, given the volume um, of inquiries that we're responding, but we're still really committed to that. It's part of, of our principles and our operating values. Um, so that is one way to access us, is just go to our website, openroadalliance.org, and click, I need funding. So The other way to approach us, and, and really where most of our um, quality pipeline, if you will, does come from, is referrals from other funders. Uh, one of the natures of our criteria, we do fund across all geographies and across all sectors. And so because of that, we aren't experts in any particular one thing. Uh, sometimes we like to say we are expert generalists. And given that, we really do a key part of our process and our criteria is piggybacking and relying on the due diligence of another funder with whom we have a trusted relationship to, to kind of have kicked the tires for us. So because of that, most of our, our pipeline in normal times comes from other funders, uh, other program officers, foundations, impact investors, impact equity investors, government agencies who gotten to know us over the years and says, hey, I have a grantee, they're in trouble, can you help? So that's the first step to, to reach us. Um, and in terms of how to approach us, what's acceptable and not acceptable, just be blunt, be candid, be to the point. We specialize in what goes wrong. So just get to it. We know you're coming to us in crisis. 
you don't need to go six rounds on, on how everything is perfect except for the small things. Lead with the bottom line up front. Tell us what's wrong. Tell us what you want to do to fix it. Tell us what it's going to take to implement that solution. Uh, and we find that the more candor, the more transparency, short and sweet, uh, to result in better outcomes. Now, you mentioned something there about patience uh, in terms of the volume that you have. I actually had a nonprofit reach out to me a few days ago asking whether they should reach out to a donor again just to make sure that the grant that they had applied for was still available and I sort of said I think you should let it play out a bit longer and they were like no no I really want to just reach out I think it's smarter that we just reach out and just say is everything okay is it still grant still happening and of course they did that <laughs> and the foundation very politely said wait <laughs> so what would, you, what would you say to some of the nonprofits there who have reached out but have not heard from you and not even just from you but other foundations what are some of the advice you give when time feels like it you really just can't wait. Oh, not that desperate time. I think everyone's desperate at this moment, but you just feel like you're getting antsy. What would you say about that in terms of uh, patience? Absolutely. The, the, the first thing I would say is go back to whatever the baseline expectations were. Um, one thing that we do and that we, we highly recommend our peers to do is as part of your application criteria, whether it's on your website or in your actual application, give people a timeline. Set expectations in front. If it's going to take you six weeks to respond to them, say that. And then they're not going to get antsy in week four. Uh, if it's going to take four weeks, say that. And then they can start getting antsy if it's been five or six weeks. We try to be upfront. Typically, we say that we respond to those inquiries within a few business days. In this time, we've updated that information. And we're very direct with folks. And we say, thank you very much. You'll hear from us within two weeks. Expectations are first. If you did have a donor that set those expectations, go back and check that. If you're outside that window yet, or if you're just borderline, then yes, I, I absolutely agree with you, patient. Uh, if you are outside of that, or you don't know what the expectations were, um, then then it is. It can be harder to have that patience for sure. Um, and to that, it, it, I'm the mother of two small children. Um, harness your inner mom. Take a deep breath, let it out, and wait another day or two. Um, if you do feel the need to reach out, keep it short, keep it sweet. Don't send them your application a second time. Don't go back with a whole new three-paragraph update on what you've been doing since you submitted the application. Just ask the question. Hi, I haven't heard from you. When can I expect to hear from you? Thank you very much for your time. And leave it at that. If you don't hear back on that, call it a wash. Um, there is something about dating. If they don't call you, you don't keep calling them. And just to conclude the virtual tour, what's the difference between a successful application and uh, an, unsuccessful, an unsuccessful application? For Open Road, we really try to stick to our criteria. Uh, it's the way that we uh, ensure quality, we ensure consistency, and the only way that we can really ensure fairness. Um, so we do recognize that there's always going to be a level of subjectivity in anybody's criteria, including our own, but it's applying that same standard, that same level, uh, those same definitions across the board where we then can turn what might otherwise be a subjective definition of 
quote, catalytic impact and keep it consistent across the board. So for us, really a successful application is one that, that meets the criteria. Um, I'd say within that, the ones that aren't successful are the people that try to twist themselves into pretzels so they can fit our criteria. We do have very rigid criteria. We have very narrow criteria in some ways. Um, it's very broad in other ways in terms of being geographic and sector agnostic. But our sweet spot really is a sweet spot. And if you're trying to force it, one, we can tell. And two, it's just going to end up in time that could have been better used by you somewhere else. Um, so I'd say, again, honest, transparent, candid, keep it simple. If I can't understand it in the simple way, it's probably not going to work out. Now you're heading up against the next section, which is mistaken identity. And I'm thinking of specifically the fact that you, I think you were generous in saying that you've got a couple hundred applications and, and inquiries coming in, but I'm sure you've got loads more, especially from organizations that just see you as a, a donor and not necessarily familiar with what you do and how you do it. How do you go about the sort of mistaken identity of that when people are mistaking you for a general donor as opposed to more of an emergencies donor? Yes, we've been getting a lot of that more often in the last uh, six weeks than, than previously. Um, some of that is just given increased brand awareness. Um, I know that our name and contact information has been put on uh, several dozen websites, I think, that have popped up saying, where can you go to find COVID funding? Here's a list of everybody providing it. Uh, and we definitely do get a lot of inquiries of people who don't bother to go to our website, don't bother to read the publicly posted criteria um, and just hit apply uh, and say, this is what I'm doing. I need money. That is annoying. Um, I don't necessarily hold folks against that. I certainly don't recommend it. Um, I recommend putting your time where there's a good fit. I recommend doing your homework, reading through the criteria um, and not having thrown spaghetti against the wall and seeing what sticks. Good news, bad news. Those types of clear misfits are very easy notes for us to make, and we make them quickly. I mean, what happens in, in the mistaken identity part is then if you try your luck, can we get back to you with a very easy no, no, this doesn't fit. When people then come back after that and argue the point, that is, I think, where it's difficult and where we do need to set them right. Um, so the first thing we always do is like, look, this is our criteria. This is where you don't fit. When we have people who press the point, and every single every single applicant who actually gets to a full application gets to our investment committee is denied, we give them in writing the exact reason according to the exact criteria that they didn't fit and why. We believe that's part of our responsibility as a funder to be honest and to be transparent and to be accountable for our criteria and tell you which criteria you didn't fit and why. We do occasionally have people come back and try to argue the point that we misinterpreted our own criteria. When that happens, you're patient and you just reiterate it. It's really just telling them that no, it doesn't fit. And what usually works where we get most pushback on that mistaken identity is on the subjective uh, criteria and it's subjective for every funder in the world, not just us, of what is impact, define impact. 
Uh, and impact is in the eye of the beholder, especially when it comes to funders. And I think the best thing that, that we do and that we can do is be honest about that. If it's a difference of opinion on impact, we say that. We acknowledge that this, it, there is a level of subjectivity in that criteria. And then we tell people that that is also why we stick to our definitions and we don't make exceptions uh, because that is the only way to be fair. What are some of the do's and don'ts for nonprofits struggling during this unprecedented moment? I try to avoid giving advice to nonprofits because they know their model and their business and their organization better than I ever could. But I think something that I, I can sort of give to the sector and, and say for the sector overall is, isn't really anything original, EJ. I got to be honest. Um, I won't hold it against you. I think it's something we're all recognizing, which is that this isn't a sprint. This isn't going to be a marathon. This is really just a new normal. And from that, you know, I think one do that all of us, funders and nonprofits, can and should do is we need to look at this as a new normal and we need to adjust. This is not about surviving so that we can go back to the way things were. The way things were will never be again. And I think the sooner that we all sort of recognize what that means for our organization and then do the really hard work to adjust to it and adjust permanently to it, not this is going to be the new normal for the next three months, but this is the new normal forever. I, I think that's something really important that we're all grappling with in our personal lives, professional lives, as organizations, as a sector, and, and really as a global community. Um, but I, I think that does trickle down particularly in this crisis. Um, and I guess the flip side of that, that don't, is don't hold on. Um, it's really hard, but I, I think we are going to have to let go a little bit. Um, and this sort of goes back to, to some of what's been before, particularly in the application process. Um, we have gotten applications from organizations that are, are just really trying to hold on um, and trying to go back to the way things were. And, and I would love to do that. But I, I just don't think uh, I, I don't think that's where we are. I'm going to throw another do and don't question that, uh, your way. I'm thinking about mm -hmm. the donors, the foundations, mostly the donors, though the individual or family foundations, where endowments have shrank, money has mm -hmm. gone that they were not expecting to go, and now their role in philanthropy has drastically changed. What are some of the? I wouldn't say necessarily do's and don'ts, but what's some of the advice you'd give to them in terms of how they remain in the space? Mm -hmm. I certainly agree with many of my colleagues and peers that have called on um, foundations and wealth holders in general to increase their payouts, to increase their donations, to do more, even if they ha are earning less. Um, and that's for the simple economic reasons that you might be earning less, but what, a $60 million endowment is, is still... Uh, still a lot, might not be 80 anymore, but, but you can still do a lot with a $60 million endowment. So I certainly agree with kind of that basic, basic premise. Um, beyond that, you know, I think the other do that I would, would give for particularly other donors who are facing that, and, you know, I think every single donor is facing that in their own way. Um, we're all facing some kind of constriction in our liquidity or in our assets or in our endowment or in our 
projected revenues or budgets or income or whatever it is, right? The entire global economy is affected, and that includes pretty much every funder as well. And do more, be honest. Be honest with your team internally, and be honest to the extent that you can with your grantees. Let them know what you're going through. Have good IQ, EQ. Um, be, be aware of, of your messaging and communication. Um, but I do think that this is really a time for empathy. Um, it's really a time for communication. And if your endowment took a 50% hit, tell folks um, that it helps. It helps people understand where we are all coming from as humans. I'm going to get you out on one last area. It's a bit of a segue as well, which is the future. <laughs> I mean, imagine when I fast, if I asked you about the future just a few months ago, what you would say, but how do you envisage the philanthropic space immediately in 2021 or immediately in, after a viable treatment has been found and administered? Yes. Um, so in 2021, and unfortunately, certainly in the first half of 2021, I, I don't think we'll quite have that uh, viable treatment or vaccine yet, maybe, maybe hopefully by the end of the end of the year, um, we'll have something that can begin to start being distributed on a, on a wide scale. Um, so kind of thinking about it as the medium term, right, we won't be post the threat of COVID, uh, where vac- vaccines are widely available, um, but we will also be outside of this acute moment. Um, I see the philanthropic space Really, I hope that the philanthropic space will continue to look long and continue to work together. Um, we are in a response phase right now. Uh, the next phase, which is going to be longer, is recovery. I do think recovery is going to extend into 2021, and it's going to look different. Um, what I hope is is part of that recovery which wasn't there a couple months ago, or at least is there in greater uh, depth and and breadth, is collaboration. I hope that elements such as increased collaboration, collaboration, uh, decreased siloing, increased coordination across actors, both funders and implementers, becomes a permanent part of a rehabilitation and not just this emergency response. And with that, I say thank you so much, Maya Wickelson from the Open Road Alliance. Finally, we'll get you on a proper call when all of this is said and done, whether that's in a few months, next year, or in two or three years. But as always, it's such a great pleasure to talk to you. My pleasure, EJ. Uh, stay healthy and safe. Thank you very much. And thank you for listening.